Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails, falls, excuse me, uh, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it uh, is conceived, uh, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Drew, I thought we are doing a series on the Holy Spirit. I didn't hear anything about the Holy Spirit mentioned in that at all. Well, um, there's a reason I want to read verses uh, 19 and 20 of James chapter 1 because it has to do with what I want to talk about, which is related to the Holy Spirit uh, in a way that I'm going to show you in a minute. But before I show you how it's related to the Holy Spirit... Uh, I just want to review what we've been through so far in our series on the Holy Spirit. So week one, uh, we looked at the Holy Spirit as a person in the Godhead. We talked about the Holy Spirit actually being a person rather than a force, and that we need to relate to him as a person with emotions and will and, and, and so forth. Uh, and then we talked about how he is a person in the Godhead, one of the three who is God. Uh, the week after that, we looked at the Holy Spirit as a promised reality, and we looked at how the Holy Spirit functioned in the Old Testament, and that in the Old Testament, the promise of the Spirit coming uh, in the New Testament was one of the great realities of the kingdom, one of the things that the people of God were looking forward to most, that the people of God would have the Holy Spirit. We said in order for the people to have the Holy Spirit in that new covenant, that we needed a Messiah to come and to be the Holy Spirit bearer so that he could, when exalted, be the Holy Spirit bestower. 
And so we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus and that he, uh, every significant point in his life, the Holy Spirit was involved and that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then because of that, last week we looked at the Holy Spirit as the one who glorifies the Messiah in the church. And so we began to speak of what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is within us now? And what does it mean that he empowers us as God's church? And what is his main objective in empowering the church? And of course it is to to glorify the Messiah. And what we said last week is this. Well, now that we've sort of dealt with this and there's a lot more to deal with, Uh, probably at some point we need to speak about a couple of the controversial things, which is stuff like tongues and prophecy and all that kind of stuff. Well, I was faithful to study for that today, but the more I studied, the more I realized that I, I felt it incumbent upon me to speak to you about something else first. Um, and it's something that we all need to know, and it's something that I don't do well. So, Caveat before I get into what I'm getting ready to get into. Now, I was told tonight that someone has really enjoyed this Holy Spirit series, which always guarantees that I'm going to ruin it the day you say that to me, because um, that's the way I roll. But what I want to talk about today is how to think in the midst of a theological debate, because there's lots of them. And if we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that may or may not be in operation today, chances are really good that I'm going to disagree with some of you, right? Um, And we live in a day and an age where we, myself included, don't always think through debate topics well. There's nothing in our society that helps us to think. And I can't guarantee tonight that everything I'm going to say is going to help you think crystal clear. I just want to make a few points going into next week when we'll actually deal with gifts. Because as I read a bunch of literature today, and as I've thought about this, um, good people disagree on this, and sometimes really good people disagree badly. And I'm the kind of person who I don't mind disagreement, but I really, really hate bad disagreement. And we're not set up to think through these things so well. So I'm going to cover a few things tonight, and as I'm covering these, you may think, Drew, you don't do them very well either. You're right. I, I might not, which, but I'm here, you're here, and we can all work together, can't we? And so we have an interlude, how to think in the midst of a theological debate. And to be honest with you, you could probably take this into any kind of debate. Um, you could take this into political debate. You could take this into a marriage debate. Just some things we need to know. So you all on page with what we're doing tonight? And I, I really want to say, I was praying today, Lord, help me to be humble, because I want you to know, in case one of these comes across and you think, he's talking about me. I'm talking about me. Seriously, I'm talking about me, okay? So what are we going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks? Well, let me give you some definitions uh, so that you'll know what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be investigating uh, something called continuationism or cessationism. Now, those are 25-cent theological words. That's why you work at UPS and pay the big bucks to go to seminary, 
so that you can learn words like continuationism and cessationism. What are they? Well, I, and I got these from a blogger named Tim Challies. I couldn't find a better definition anywhere else, so I thought his would do. Continuationism is the belief that the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit taught in the Bible, such as prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings, and miracles, have not ceased and are available for the believer today. So, in operation, still in the church today, are all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the ones like tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, and gifts of healings. That's content. So you can see there in that word that, um, what's at the root here? Continue. Those things are still continuing. As opposed to cessationism. Now what word do you hear in cessationism? Ceased. Some things have stopped. So cessationism teaches that the supernatural gifts and by supernatural, we mean the ones that are manifestly so, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, healing, teaches that supernatural gifts have ceased either with the canon of Scripture when it was completed or at the death of the last apostle. In other words, this is a matter of whether certain miraculous gifts uh, that were active at one time are still active today. So did tongues speaking and the prophetic gifts stop with uh, the death of the last apostle or with the completion of the scripture, did it cease or uh, does it uh, continue? And there are really, really good godly people on either side. This is one of those ones that kind of actually bothers me because people I really, really deeply respect and know to be folks who value the scripture and clear thinking and genuine experience disagree on. So. The first person I ever really read theologically was a man maybe some of you have heard of named John MacArthur. I got cut my teeth on reading John MacArthur when I was in high school. Uh, and one of the books that I bought early in college was a book called Charismatic Chaos, where John MacArthur, who's a very careful exegete of scripture, goes through problem passages and talks about why the gifts of tongues and prophecy have ceased why gifts of healing have ceased. Um, and I was convinced until three years later when I read John Piper, who's also a very careful exegete of scripture, a very godly man, argued that those things still continue. And you have people like R.C. Sproul that I love who would say that those things have ceased and Kevin DeYoung. And then you have people like Matt Chandler and um, Sam Storms and all of these men love each other then they disagree. So all that to say, are we going to settle anything here in the next two weeks? <laughs> no, we'll just kind of work on a direction together. How's that sound? Uh, so that's what we're after, cessationism or continuationism. But before we even get there, we've got some concerns that need to, to be addressed. And We'll just see how we do. How's that sound? Okay. These arguments often reveal how much we value other things over Scripture. When it comes to things like whether tongues continue or whether they've ceased, or when it comes to other kinds of arguments, such as whether the Bible supports 
moderate consumption of alcohol or complete teetotaling or whether uh, there's six literal days in Genesis or whether that's to be interpreted in another way. Uh, the end times, these arguments often reveal how much we value other things over Scripture. They, they often show how much I value other things other than Scripture. And a verse that I love to think of in this regard is 2 Peter 1.19. Second uh, Peter 1, Peter has just been talking about the fact that he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the reasons that he knows that Jesus is the Christ is because he saw him transfigured. And then the very next thing that Peter says is, and, and that could be translated but, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What is Peter saying here? I have my experience, but I have something that's even more sure. What's even more sure than my God-given experience of seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain? The Bible. And so that should really drill down into our hearts that when it comes to these sorts of things, all of us need to try as best as we can, and none of us can do it perfectly, but we need to try as best we can to detach ourselves from the kinds of things that drive us and just to try and look at the Bible, right? Uh, I've told you this story before. For many years, Chinese star charts looked different than European star charts. Chinese folks had more stars in the sky than their European counterparts. Uh, and then one day something happened and the European people started noticing a whole bunch more stars in the sky. You're like, how do you not notice a star in the sky one day and then see a star in the sky the next day? Well, something happened where the, the Europeans, as opposed to the Chinese folks, actually came to believe, as opposed to Aristotle, that the sun was at the center of the galaxy and not the earth. And when that happened, they began to see things that were there the whole time. Have you ever had an experience where that was there the whole time and I didn't see it? What we need to do when we get involved in theological arguments is we need to realize how much every single one of us has something. It doesn't mean we're lost, but we all have something that we value at least on level with the scripture, if not above. Can we all say, oh me on that? Well, y'all... You arrogant cusses, can we all say, oh, me on that? All right. This is not going to be one of those nights where I just tell you how bad I am. You're bad too. Anyway. <laughs> listen to what Sam Storms. Sam Storms uh, is a continuationist. He believes that uh, all the gifts are in operation today, but he used to not be. He taught for years at a, a great school called Wheaton. Uh, and listen, I know you can't read this. I'm going to read it for you. I don't, I don't expect you to read it. I just always, I just want you to know I'm not making this up. He talks about how he went from being a cessationist to being a continuationist. And listen to what he says. He says, perhaps the most painful part of this particular theological shift from not believing in tongues and prophecy and miracles to believing in it, perhaps the most painful part of this theological shift was my discovery of the primary reason that I had so long resisted the full range of the Spirit's gifts. Beyond the biblical arguments to which I appealed, I was quite, quite frankly embarrassed by the appearance and behavior of many in the public eye who were associated with spiritual gifts. 
I didn't like the way they dressed. I didn't like the way they spoke. I was offended by their lack of sophistication, their overbearing flamboyance. I was disturbed by the flippant disregard for theological precision and their excessive displays of emotional exuberance. Uh, my opposition to spiritual gifts was also energized by fear, the fear of emotionalism, the fear of fanaticism, the fear of the unfamiliar, the fear of rejection by those whose I respect I cherished and whose friendship I did not want to forfeit, the fear of what might occur were I fully to relinquish control of my life and mind and emotions to the Holy Spirit, the fear of losing what little status in the evangelical community my hard work had attained. I was talking about the kind of fear that energized a personal agenda to distance myself from anything that potentially linked me with people who I believed were an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. Now, you could give a quote on the other side, couldn't you? It's often things deeper than we immediately see that drive what we believe. I'm not in any way arguing that that means everything we believe is untrue. It just means that whenever we engage in theological debate with somebody, one of the first things we want to do is check our own heart, right? Check our own heart. Why, why, what? If I stop and really look at myself, what drives me here? Now, let me give you a little tip that I, I use in my own heart. Usually our idols reveal themselves in our uncontrollable emotions. There's a lot of theological arguments that I don't get worked up about at all. And then there are some theological arguments that I get worked up quite a bit about. And the question is, why do I get worked up about some and not others? It's usually attached to some idol in my heart, unfortunately. Other things. I mean, I'm just going to stay here for a second. I've got my notes. Not, not only will our personal prejudices blind us, but other sources of authority maybe have more importance than they should. Let me say what I'm about to say with this caveat. I love confessions of faith. I love them. I could read them all day long. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention has the Baptist faith and message. It's good. But I'm a 1689 Second London Baptist of faith kind of guy. Or many of my Presbyterian friends really love the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and it's a great document and I've benefited from reading it and it's important because what people used to believe should have some sort of bearing on what we believe because they were godly people who were our forebears, right? All that's true. We always love church history when it's on our side, don't we? But in reading some stuff about uh, the continuation of gifts, a couple of people just go, well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that they've ceased. Why are we arguing? Well, I respect the Westminster Confession of Faith, but, but we, we, we all believe the Bible first, don't we? I mean, the Bible is the fundamental thing, and even though we really revere the men who wrote the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, you should read about them. They're amazing men from the 1600s, great work. Uh, they things change and what we have to respond to changes and time opens up corridors of knowledge and we just need to continually go back to the Bible, don't we? So for some of us, it may be some confession of faith or some past um, denominational background that may have some influence over us that we just really need to say, all right, that's good and I praise God for what I have, but 
A lot of godly people disagree, so I'm just going to set that aside and we're just going to try and look straight at the Bible. Because maybe it's a confession of faith sometimes that sort of like makes it so we can't see all the stars. Or I imagine for most of us, because if I were to say how many of you have ever read a confession of faith, this is not a shot against you, but I just don't imagine many hands would go up. For many of us, um, it's our experiences that have the biggest impact, right? So I grew up in a Baptist tradition where there was no tongue speaking and there was no prophecy. And a lot of people were really changed and a lot of people were really made godly and a lot of people really grew and a lot of good things happened. And because of that, I could probably think it was great. I don't think it was completely great, but it was mostly great, right? And so we had everything we needed. What, what else do we need? I don't need this. Or maybe you grew up in a very charismatic background where you come to a church like this and you really miss the leading of the spirit. Uh, or maybe you're tempted not to believe in prophecy, but I had a guy come to me one time and basically say one time in church, I was praying and a lady came and laid her hands on me and basically said in a prophetic word, everything that happened to me over the next three years of my life, what am I supposed to do with that? And so we all have these powerful experiences, don't we? And those powerful experiences can really shape us. But even like those statements of faith, we have to be able to set those aside and say, we're just going to look at the Bible, right? And so I'm not saying y'all need to lay down your preconceived notions and just listen to me. What I'm going to say is we all need to work through this together as we lay aside our preconceived notions. Capiche? These kind of arguments often reveal how much we lionize our friends and demonize our foes. Now, for instance, in reading some of this stuff about tongue speaking or not tongue speaking, uh, I've heard basically people say that if you believe in speaking in tongues, then you're just a radical. You're just a radical. And then I've heard other people say, if you don't believe in speaking in tongues and prophecy, then you're a deist. You're like those people who believe God just kind of wound the world up and let it run and backed off. Well, Christians aren't deists, right? Do y'all know enough about deism to know? All right. We're not deists. Uh, and so we have a re real tendency to lionize our friends. That is, my guys are great, and everybody over there, we demonize them. One of the ways in which we do this is if we find a pastor we really trust at the end of the day, we really just want to know what they say about the text. Now, here's the problem with that. We're not Roman Catholic. And why am I saying that? Because Roman Catholics, any theological debate they have about interpreting a passage, they have someone who can speak to that. Who is that? The Pope and the magisterium of the church. We're not Catholics. We don't believe in a Pope. I wonder what John Piper says about this. What does Joyce Meyer say about this text? Because I can't understand this text until I know what Joyce Meyer has to say about it. What, all right, tongues. I, I, you know what? Let's see what Charles Stanley has to say. What's going on in that case? We've just substituted our Pope, haven't we? We can't do that. What happens is the Reformation came along and it put the Bible into the hands of the people 
And then what we often do is we just give it back to somebody else we trust and say, you tell me what that says. And we shouldn't do that, should we? Because does any one man have a lock on every area of the truth? Does any one person understand anything? Well, you may understand some things, but does any one person understand everything? No, it, even pastors have a history and a temperament that have something to do with what they see clearly and what they don't see clearly, which is why we should have a multiplicity of elders and a number of people uh, preaching to us. But what we have like to do is lionize our friends and demonize our foes. And what we need to do instead of that is going, you know, some of these people I really trust in may not know everything, and some of these people I struggle with may know something I don't know. And so we have to just be careful that we, we listen. And, and this, I'm going to repeat this over and over again. The reason that I'm talking about how we argue and how we think about things is because Christians are supposed to be characterized by love. And because everyone is made in God's image, we're to take them all seriously. And so this, this is about the way that Christians should approach things, right? And we're just getting sucked into uh, an us versus them mentality in every area of our life. And we're separated from people that we disagree with so that they can become more and more of a caricature of themselves when we actually need to be engaging with people, not lionizing or demonizing. These kind of arguments, I'm getting close to the end. And I know this is not a sermon. I know. But you've got to give me one every now and then. Um, these arguments often reveal how little we carefully listen and seek to understand another person. This is what James 1.19 says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I am willing to bet knowing myself and knowing a lot of us that if the, there aren't many among us who we could say are honestly quick to hear and slow to speak. Many of us have the bullet in the chamber just waiting on the victim to show himself with a verbal pause, right? Stop talking, bang. I'm not listening to what you're saying. And we all know this, but it's just the Bible says so let me give you a tip. Let me give you a rule. And this is something that I want to try and obey as well. If I don't care enough to listen to somebody I'm debating, then it's not worth debating them. If I'm not prepared to listen to what you say, then I'm just going to look at you and go, it's not worth us talking about it. And just be honest. I'm just, I don't have time. Uh, I'm fairly, con I'm not going to listen. Now we don't want to say that, do we? Because we want to say, I'm quick to hear and slow to... No, we should just be honest. I'm pretty firm. You're not going to change my mind. Probably not a good way to spend our time. Or maybe we could go, let's schedule a time so I can listen to you. But if we're not going to listen to people, if we're engaging with them just so we can try and make them understand what we're saying, uh, then we're not, we're not engaging with people in a Christian manner. We're not taking them seriously. And we're not supposed to take everybody seriously. I'm okay to look at some people and go, you're a fool. I'm not going to listen to you. But for most people, we should, we should do what? And what happens is these kind of arguments often reveal how little we carefully listen and seek to understand another person. These kind of arguments also often reveal 
how little we carefully listen to Scripture. Because if you're anything like me, I want to watch my favorite show. I don't want to think about theological stuff. So if someone will just kind of take all the rough edges off of a theological subject and give it to me, I'll just believe that so I can move on to stuff I actually care about. Is that striking home with anybody? But God gave us a book, and he gave us a book to read. He gave us a long book. He gave us a book that in many places is complicated. And, and, and at various points in our lives, we can only do so much. But at some point in our life, we should probably really try and dig into that thing. Amen? And sometimes we make theological arguments easy because we want them to be easy because we actually want to engage in something that we care about. But then something like this comes along and really, really smart people who may be a little godlier than you disagree with you, in which case you got to go, fine, let's talk, right? I won't worry about this pet project for a second. Let's talk about something. Are you quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? These arguments also reveal how poorly we argue. Uh, here's what, here's, if you're taking notes, here's what I want everybody to write down right now. Two words, informal fallacies. Informal fallacies. Because I want you to go home and I want you to look up what informal fallacies are. What an informal fallacy is, is it is a way that we argue that's not fair. And it's not true and it's not right. I'm only going to give you like three examples because there are like two dozen of these and many of them have Latin names but if you read an article about it it'll explain it so you can get it and it would be good all right so there's one called a personal attack does anybody know the Latin ad hominem which means to the man all right and an ad hominem attack is when I don't attack your point which is valid but I attack you. Well, of course you believe that. Do you like Clemson? Right? Of course you believe that. You're a Tar Heels fan. Uh, uh, of course you think that way. You're a Baptist. Of course you... Th now, just to spread it out evenly, I'm going to hit our current president, and then I'll go back and hit our former president so everybody can be happy, all right? Uh, our current president is a master of ad hominem. Now, is Hillary Clinton a crook? You can decide that for yourselves. So, you know, did she do illegal things? I'm not going to tell you what to believe. But um, our president does, didn't deal with her on the issues. He just called her names. That's ad hominem. Now, maybe she deserved it. Maybe she didn't. But that's not how you debate something, is it? Um, so that's personal attack, ad hominem. That's where instead of dealing with the argument, you say something about them. Where, you know, I knew you'd take their side. You always take their side. It has nothing to do with whether or not it's right. It's that you always take their side. That's a personal attack. Don't do that. Take that out of your marriage as well. Now I'll give you our former president's favorite um, informal fallacy. It's the false choice. So the false choice is where you hold two things out as if they're the only two you can choose. 
either for your my tax for my tax plan or you hate poor people. There's nothing in the middle, right? Either you vote for this or you don't believe in uh, science. Either you think you agree with me on this uh, or you are still a Nazi. Now, our former president was a master at that. It's a good rhetorical tool because you're like, well, I'm not a Nazi. So I, I guess, uh, right, um, I, you know, okay, I don't, I don't hate poor people, so I guess, yeah, all right. No, this is a false choice. He's like, I don't want to vote for you, and I don't hate poor people. I'm here. This is what, so false choices. And so in our current debate, you could say either you speak in tongues or you don't care about the Holy Spirit. Or either you deny tongue speaking or you don't care about the Bible. That's false choice. How about a straw man? I'm only going to give you a couple more. Don't worry. A straw man is, they call it a straw man because straw burns easily. And so what you do is you take the weakest form of somebody else's argument and you hold that forward and you light it on fire and you say, I win. So instead of actually listening to what they say and realizing that they have a nuanced argument, you just go, this is what you believe, burn. So I believe in predestination. This is a straw man. You believe in predestination? Well, you just think God chooses people willy-nilly. No, 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 I don't. Pretty nuanced view with a lot of things. Or I could say, you think it all comes down to free will? You don't care about the glory of God. No, there's a lot of people who believe in absolute unrestricted free will who think that God receives glory in all things. No, no, no. We can, we got to talk to one another, right? We don't hold forth a straw man and then light it up. We actually deal with that person's argument. You following me? That's a straw man. One more. We love this one. The slippery slope. And the slippery slope is if we take one step down that hill, we're just going to fall. If we allow people to speak in tongues, or if we allow them to speak when they have a prophetic utterance, the next thing you know, we're going to be running down the aisles with snakes. Right? That's, a, that's a called a slippery slope. You see that? I'll give you one more. It's my favorite. It's, it's using absolutes. It's using the word always or never. You should never use always or never in an argument. Right? Because does anybody always or never do anything? Probably not when it comes to what you're arguing about. Right? You always take the kid's side. I spanked him last week. Right? Uh, You never take out the trash. Well, six months ago I did on a Tuesday. (laughs) What happens when you use always or never is you're beating somebody with words. These are called informal fallacies. They're not fair. Now, why would a pastor in a Baptist church spend a number of minutes on that? Because it's unloving to argue that way. It's unloving and it doesn't seek the truth and it doesn't treat your opponent with respect. It's ungodly. Informal fallacies are sinful. 
And what happens in these arguments like this, just like arguments about politics or arguments about Wendy's or Hardee's, they often reveal how poorly we think and how poorly we argue. And then one final thing, these arguments often reveal how insecure we are. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by this. Um, we want quick certainty. That's what we want. We want quick certainty. Without work, certainty. Can I burst your bubble at two points? And one of these is kind of going to be a esoteric argument and it's warm in here so just do the best you can the, the first is anything worth having isn't quick is it it just isn't um, we grow learning is not just about coming to the truth the best truths that you learn are the ones in the process of coming to the truth right I mean Tuesday's math lesson, whether or not, you know, Deacon finishes it all, is never the main lesson. The main lesson is something like having the ability to sit in your seat until the work is done. And the lesson is about the Christian value and virtue of submission to authority. I, I told you to do it. Those are always the better lessons. And so when we come to a truth... Often the way that we come to it teaches us the deepest and best truths. And we want to short circuit all of that by just being quick. We'd rather be weeds than acorns. So there's no quick certainty. And then, here's where I mean to bust your bubble, there's very little certainty. Now, what do I mean by that? Drew, I believe in absolute truth. Well, I'm listening to you. I know what you mean when you say that. You want to know that there are some things that are true everywhere all the time. And there are things that are true everywhere all the time. It's just there's only one person in the universe who has an absolute knowledge of them. Who is that? It's God. And what we know is relative to what he says. Does this make sense? So I understand what people mean when they say, I believe in absolute truth. I believe in absolute truth as well. It's just only God knows it. And I'm relatively, I know truth relative to my relationship with him. And God doesn't tell us everything. And God doesn't settle every debate. And God doesn't make it easy. And so there are things that are true. And there are a number of things about which we can be certain. But there's not much about which we can be certain. And the reason that we want, final point, some of you look tired. The reason we want certainty is because we want to feel assurance apart from God. If I understand this, then I don't need to be dependent. I have confidence in that area. And here's what I'm telling you. Everything you know, you know because of Jesus. And every bit of knowledge that you have is completely dependent upon him. And so these arguments often reveal how insecure we actually are.
So let me say this. Over the next week or so, as we talk about speaking in tongues, we're not going to settle anything. I'm not after certainty. You know what I'm after? A commitment that you and I will keep working at it over the years. I'm not after certainty. I'm not going to answer it. We're not going to work out the predestination thing. There's a lot of stuff I don't tell you I believe because I know you'll think it's weird and I'd rather you just trust me. Right? You think I believe weird stuff? You ain't heard three or four of the most weird things I believe. He believes the book of Revelation is mostly fulfilled. That's not the weirdest thing I believe, y'all. But do you, have, I, have I shown myself to be trustworthy with a word? I, I'm not, you don't have to answer that because you may think, not really. <laughs> um, but the way God has set it up is, is not that you can always trust me to give you the right answer. It's that you can trust me to keep loving you and listening to you while we, as a community of believers, work on it together. So, um, I'll tell you next week what I believe. And then I'll try to give you good arguments so that you can work on figuring out what you believe. Uh, And then we can come to some sort of consensus and pursue the Lord together as his people around what we're working on together. And I, I think that about a number of issues. There is no application. Except this. Um, be patient. Work hard. And let's lay aside our idols. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Just pray that you would help us to be loving, kind, generous people in the way that we argue and in the way that we listen not only to others but also to your word help us to lay aside uh, our preconceived notions that don't fall in line with your scripture and father help us to hold on together and to hold on with one another those things that are clear in your word we ask all this in jesus name.